The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. To find other amazing Alberta-made podcasts, visit albertapodcastnetwork.com. I'm Dave Cornoyer, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're recording this episode on June 28th, 2020, and recording it remotely, of course, because we're still all physically distancing. And we're joined today by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hey, Adam. Hi, Dave. How's it going? Good. I'm having a great weekend. I hope you are, too. I, I am, too. I'm enjoying the uh, the, the beautiful, cloudy, uh, threatening to rain weather here at Edmonton. It's a nice reprieve from the all the nice weather we had last week. Yeah. Uh, and we are thrilled to be joined today by our special guest, Andrew Leach. Andrew is a Canadian energy and environmental economist and an associate professor at the University of Alberta. And he just found out seconds ago that he has a Wikipedia page. So this welcome. is the biggest news of my Sunday. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is, a, this is a great pleasure to be here. Well, we're we're we're, we're thrilled to have you on. Uh, and uh, now that you're now you're now you're not you're not only Wikipedia famous, but you're Dave Berta podcast famous. So we're, that's uh, that's a big <laughs> Sunday. <laughs> that's great. So we're you know we're. For 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 those of you for for those of listeners who might not uh, might not know who you are, Andrew. I mean, we provided a brief description uh, of some of your background of your you know your your page on Wikipedia. I guess they can check out your page on Wikipedia. But uh, can you just tell our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself and who you are? Sure. Uh, well, you covered off the big ones. I'm, I'm an economist by training. I work mostly in energy and environment issues, climate change, oil sands, etc. Been here in Alberta at the U of A since 2006. And I guess probably the, the way that I'm most connected to a lot of people in the province would have been as chair of Premier Notley's climate leadership panel in 2015, which seems longer than five years ago now. But that was uh, what brought in you know some of the policy, some of her policies, but also some that uh, that remain in place today under the Kenny government. So, I mean, I guess we could talk a little talk. I want to talk to you today about I mean a whole wide range of issues about the economy, about pipelines, about uh about climate change and, and where you think alberta is now so let, i guess let's just dive in uh first of all like the alberta economy we've we've sustained uh you know since 2014 2015 uh you know there's been a, it's been been a bit of a of, of a wild ride here in alberta we've had it we had the big drop in the international price of oil around 2014 2015 we had a change in government for the first time in 43 years uh we had um uh, more, more, and then more recently, the or then we had another change in government in 2019. We had you know the climate leadership plan. We've had had a, a lot going on around pipeline politics, and now the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic shutdown. And now governments are talking about the the economic relaunch, reopening the economy after uh, government essentially shut down huge portions of our, of our economy to do, to face the pandemic. Where where do you, what are your general thoughts on where Alberta is right now? You know, I think I'd go maybe one step even further back than you did, which is sort of around the time of uh, Premier Stelmach's departure and into Premier Redford's time in office, which was when we turned a corner from increasing year over year over year the amount of inflation-adjusted resource revenues per Albertan. And right in the middle of that transition, we sort of turned a corner to that resource revenues per Albertan decreasing in inflation-adjusted terms. And, and it was early on, it was both inflation and population growth that were cutting against those. More recently, it's been declining oil prices, declining rates of production growth, et cetera. And so you're, you've been seeing that almost dissatisfaction 
amongst Albertans for probably 10 years now of why am I not getting as much from my government? Why are services not keeping up with what I want? Uh, both at the federal level, municipal, or sorry, provincial, federal, and municipal levels, I think are all feeling this. And so, as you say, now we're into this 2014 oil prices collapse. It exacerbates all of that pressure. Uh, they stay low or relatively low through all of the last four years or five years through Premier Notley's rule. And then into the Kenny government, there were some signs early in, in his time in office that the oil market was going to recover and the gas market was looking a little bit better. But essentially, he's now fought with some of the same challenges that were there for, for Premier Notley, which is a unexpected and significant oil price crash. And as you say, compounded with uh, the pandemic. I think I think you raised an interesting point there, and an interesting it's something that we need to differentiate that I find gets gets confused in Alberta politics or gets gets mixed up sometimes on purpose and sometimes not on purpose is the difference between when when we talk about oil revenues we can talk about uh, you can talk about the economy and you talk about employment levels or in Alberta we talk a lot about unemployment levels lately over the past recent years talk about the international price of oil but then you also talk about we can also talk about and I think it's important to differentiate government revenue and the amount of revenue that the government of Alberta really for, for decades uh, has relied very heavily on revenues from oil and gas royalties to fund the day-to-day -day operations of government. And, and that's something that I think a lot of people, I mean, that a, a lot of people re really need to understand is, is how much the Alberta government has relied, I would say over relied uh, too heavily on, on oil and gas revenues to, to fund the day-to-day -day operations of, of the public services. Yeah, I think that's that's part of the story. And then I think the other part that is has a similar notion is, you know, when you think of what our economy was driven by, say, 2006 to 2015, roughly, you know, we think of it as being an oil sands boom, but really what it was was an oil sands project construction boom. Okay. And so that's what was driving the jobs and inflation and salaries and spinoffs and all of that, you know, when the Tim Hortons was paying signing bonuses kind of world. And that's much harder to recreate than just an increase in oil prices. So when people today are looking out and saying, you know, Premier Kenny's going to recreate the boom type thing, he doesn't just need to recreate higher oil prices. He needs to recreate significant numbers of companies wanting to make 50-year bets on high oil prices and to bring billions of dollars a year in in foreign direct investment. And that's much harder than just you know if you, we had a spike in oil prices due to who knows what uh, uh you know big change in the middle east etc you could see oil prices come temporarily back up reasonably rapidly but the idea that people would be willing to make those really long-term bets on that oil price you know we still know the world is awash in cheap oil and and that's unlikely to change well and that, and that seems to be one of the the key i guess key key narratives or, or key differences in, in from Alberta uh, economically now than, than perhaps it was a few years ago is this glut of cheap oil on the international market. And I hear frequently um, politicians and political observers talk about, uh, talk about Eastern Canada, talk about Quebec and not using Alberta oil. And, you know, we could talk about the, the lack of, of existing pipelines or what that might have looked like in energy east and then we, we hear a lot about that number of politics um but really it seems to be that it's a market problem is that there's there's a lot of uh cheap oil 
on the international market and these private companies in eastern canada are importing it and refining it and the a lot of the, the oil product that we make can help here in alberta through the oil sands it is more expensive to refine and and to create into something that we can actually use and it's it's not as accessible um as the the, the big tankers that are just sitting off the coast on, on the east coast or even on the west coast yeah and and i think the the role of the u.s here is really important right the u.s not only do they have a whole bunch of cheap oil, but they've also lost the sort of energy security motivation for creating a market for Alberta oil sands, which they did really through the 2000s. Uh, lots of very aggressive tax credits to encourage refineries in the US to convert to process oil sands bitumen. Of course, we know about the pipelines going there. And so the US seeing a world of, you know, harder oil and more expensive oil and more um, state owned and Middle Eastern owned oil being available uh, and not a lot domestically, they initially looked and created this market for our oil sands as a very deliberate move. And, and that worked out very well for us. Now they don't, they don't need that same amount. I mean, they still import a lot of oil, they still run a lot of our oil, but they're not in that same world of, oh my goodness, where could we possibly find the oil we need to run our economy? They don't have to look north as much as they did at one point. I've heard the the phrase um, "our biggest customer became our biggest competitor." Uh, yeah, that bounty to round. Now, does, does that have a lot to do with fracking, or did it you does? I mean, Peter Trzakian, I think, was probably the the person to first coin that. I, I might be misattributing it, but I think you know, it, it's it's almost it's not so much that they're competing because they're producing a very different grade of crude. It's that they no longer need us in the same way. So you know, it's. Uh, I wouldn't look at it as them becoming as much our competitor as just we're no longer an essential supplier to them in the same way that we were before. Um, because we represent still a significant source of crude, but a lot of that infrastructure is built. We have nowhere else to sell it. And the idea that we're going to sort of move away from supplying their market is, uh, is not as real a possibility even as, as some would make it out to be. So, you, you you touched on the I mean the the refineries down in the states that a lot of Albertans would be familiar with are the ones down in Texas that are at the other end of the Keystone XL pipeline and yeah. pipeline politics has basically I mean I would say it's been one of the biggest issues in Alberta politics for geez the past five six or seven years um, that uh, that well really I, I yeah that uh, that Alberta politicians have really been focusing on on pipeline politics I mean there used to be it seems less so less so now because of all the other issues that are happening. But it seemed that for a while, for a few years, it was every day what the big issue of of the day in Alberta politics was something about one of the pipelines that was either being constructed or being delayed uh, or just being bandied around and talked about. So, I mean, for I guess sure. could could you just I mean give give me your thoughts on on the state of pipelines by <laughs> the pipeline politics in Alberta because uh, it does take up so much oxygen. Yeah, so you know, there's I would say probably three or four big things that have changed. So if you go back to 2014, you had the U.S. veto of Keystone XL, and at that point, you know, the likelihood of a of a Donald Trump presidency was sort of way back in the in the distance, and so or way out in the distance. So you had really high oil prices, an Alberta oil market that didn't have enough pipeline capacity to get its oil out to take advantage of those high oil prices. 
And so everyone's scrambling to find what can we do? So that's where Energy East comes about, right? And, and Energy East is a long pipeline to a market that doesn't run our bitumen, but it took advantage of there being existing underused natural gas pipelines that were already there. So you can convert those and it makes it effectively cheaper, still not cheap, but cheaper to build all the way to St. John or at least to build as, as far as Ottawa than to build say to the, the West Coast. But the one that people always wanted was more capacity to the West Coast. Same time you have Northern Gateway run into a whole bunch of legal challenges and, and not a lot of political support uh, pipeline going to the West Coast. So for Alberta, you have this situation of we have all this oil, the world's at $100 oil again, and we don't have any way to get it out. And we're taking these massive discounts and, and it's real cost to the economy. Uh, since then, of course, as we talked about already, you've had the collapse in oil prices, you've had the change in the US uh, or the acceleration of, of US domestic production that's turned them from a net import or a big net importer to a marginal net importer and some days even a net exporter of products. And so all of that market has changed. At the same time, you've seen a couple of projects get built. Line three is almost completed. That's a, a revision of the Enbridge uh, Line three pipeline or re reconstruction of line three. Trans Mountain, you know, any of the Edmonton listeners, you can go out and go out by the Henday Bridge in the uh, West End. You can see the pipeline going in the ground there. It's been along that a lot of the Henday corridor for most of the summer or most of the spring. Uh, so it's getting built. And then, of course, Keystone XL is still in this weird never never land in the US. But our overall demand for pipelines, like our forward looking, oil production forecast is down by prop well a million barrels a day the last one was over a million barrels a day down from what would have been the case in 2014 so we need fewer pipelines right now we are also getting a couple that maybe were previously in delay so now it's a little less tense than it would have been three or four years ago i would say so i mean it's a lot but yeah no no and, and like look, looking at pipelines i mean the I would imagine that that a lot about a lot of the investment in in oil pipelines has to do with future speculation about what we might need uh, five or ten years down the road. Because Keystone XL, I mean, or, or I should say, uh, the Trans Mountain uh, expansion uh, uh, pipeline that the the federal government owns and is currently being constructed, uh, that's not going to be built tomorrow. That's not going to be built maybe even by next year. So when it is built, is there going to be demand for these pipelines? Like when they're actually constructed? So uh, most of the pipelines or any of the ones that are being built right now are backed by contract. So they're, okay. they'd have the equivalent of a, a 15 to 20 year subscription for the majority of the volumes on that pipeline. So Trans Mountain is fully contract back. So there's en enough for that, for the Enbridge expansion. Keystone XL is where things start to get a little bit dicey. So when they brought that project back, uh, when Pre President Trump first approved that project, when he was first in office, they brought that project back on online. Uh, TransCanada suffered a lot in trying to get uh, contracts for that pipeline. And that was basically what triggered them walking away from Energy East was so that those contracts could move over to Keystone XL. So that the companies that had contracts behind Energy East, once that project was canceled, then they no longer, A, they need shipping capacity, B, they can move those contracts. So Alberta did this, for example, they had a 100,000 barrel a day subscription on Energy on Energy East. Energy East is canceled, they announced a 50,000 barrel a day subscription on Keystone XL. 
there were multiple other players that did that. That allowed TransCanada to underpin Keystone XL with enough contracts with um, investment grade credit holders that they could then go out and borrow money to build the pipeline without having to take the risk that you would have with if you were just building it on spec or building it on merchant risk. They're backed with essentially somebody else guaranteeing you they're going to pay your mortgage on the pipeline. So the demand will be there or the, or the financial backing will be there as long as those major industry players, the Suncores and Imperials and Synovus and them remain viable. Um, Keystone, still some challenges as it gets more and more delayed again, it's possible that some of those contracts will, uh, or some of those subscription holders will be able to walk away from those contracts. And I know this is deep in the weeds of pipeline finance, but we have seen a few of those already companies selling off their holdings in Keystone XL. So imagine, think of your pipeline politics. The most important thing to Alberta oil is access to pipelines. And you've got companies today that are offloading their commitments to those pipelines because now, they don't want that liability on their balance sheet. Now, is that related to the, the $7.5 billion investment that the Alberta government announced for the uh, Keystone XL pipeline? Absolutely. So part of what the government did, they took an equity interest in the pipeline. So that de-risks it a little bit for TransCanada, but they also put forward those loan guarantees. So what that's doing is making it easier for TransCanada to acquire the financing they need to build that project, even if they don't have the same level of contract backing that they would otherwise have. Okay. And, and as we've heard, so it's like having someone co-sign your mortgage, essentially, you can go out, someone okay. co-signs your mortgage, you can go out and borrow more money um, and or potentially at lower insurance rates than you would otherwise be able to do. Okay. And, and as we've heard from down in the States, I mean, they're, they're in the middle of a presidential election right now. And, and Joe Biden, who's the Democratic uh, presumptive nominee uh, and uh, who appears to be leading in the polls almost, you know, everywhere but Utah and, uh, and Wyoming, uh, has said basically said point blank that he's going to cancel the Keystone XL pipeline, which I, th I think would be very interesting to see how that actually works, because for my, it's my understanding that uh, uh, large portions of the pipeline down in the States have actually been built. Uh, yeah, the, the wording of the permit, though, is very strong in this. The, the, the text of the presidential permit, which you need for cross-border infrastructure, basically says president can cancel this at any time. It's not just a construction permit, it's a construction and operation permit. And even worse, if the president cancels it, it's on TransCanada to remove all of the infrastructure at their cost. So it's, it's a very strong, like if you looked at that as kind of, a contract for the purchase of a we'll come back to the house example, right? If that were the lien on your house purchase, that this could happen to you, someone could snap their fingers. And not only would you, you know, lose the house, but you'd have to move all your belongings out at your expense. It's unlikely that you'd get a mortgage on it. And, and so it, when I went and looked at that permit, I was actually surprised at how much room there was. I checked with a couple of friends who are law profs in the U S and all of them said, yeah, it's, you know, very, uh, very clear it's executive discretion to re revoke that permit at any point. Wow. Well, that, that would have uh, uh, remarkable uh, repercussions, political, political repercussions, and I guess even economic repercussions here in Alberta because the Alberta oh. government poured so much money into that, uh, into that pipeline and so much political capital into it as well. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's, I hope that if it's materially constructed, which it looks like it will be, that you know in some ways there'll be an ability for 
some kind of an agreement that prevents that outcome from happening. You know, one of the ones that immediately jumps to mind would be essentially what was on the table in uh, in the initial Keystone round, which was stronger climate policy on the Canadian side of the border as a as a trade. And, you know, that might have maybe, maybe not carried the day with with President Obama, you know, we, we can never know. But uh, but that was certainly something that was on the table at that point was, you know, you're going to have to give us a lot more if you want this pipeline to get approved. And I wonder if the same thing wouldn't be possible with uh, a President Biden. Yeah, I mean, you, you would think that, I mean, obviously, I mean, climate change is not an issue that President Trump seems to worry about at all. But uh, the return of a, of a Democratic uh, president in the White House, and uh, if the Democrats are able to take, you know, to, to win both the Senate and the House, I would imagine that climate change would, would, they would definitely, they would, t they would take a, a def definitely a different approach on climate change that President Trump uh, did, and it would be uh, uh, back, on, back on the table. Um, yeah. Yeah, so... so I, pipelines and climate change and, and political narratives. So I look at the Alberta government's narrative and the United Conservative Party government in Alberta elected in 2019, their narrative about the oil industry and some of the stuff they've done to it, it be, being implemented uh, uh, around uh, pr promotion of the oil industry. Um, you have the uh, the three the three main points that the UCP ran on in 2019 jobs the economy and pipelines I mean really what you know the, the only thing that that, that you know that, that they might be able to, to salvage from that at least this year is is pipelines with with jobs in the economy being uh, being kind of thrown to the side with the with the with the pandemic they've implemented the the Canadian Energy Center also known as the uh, the Energy War Room. They've implemented a public inquiry into uh, anti uh, foreign funding of anti Alberta energy campaigns. Uh, they've implemented, or they've they've they they tasked the Fair Deal panel with find with uh, with finding uh, you know Alberta autonomy uh, uh, possibilities for Alberta autonomy autonomy, which I think plays all into this. And there's been a real focus on finding on 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 creating a narrative around. Uh, foreign enemies of Alberta and the reason why Alberta, you know, the reason why Alberta's economy is not doing well, the reason why we can't uh, export oil is has to do with foreign funded groups like the Rockefellers, like people like Sapora Berman and David Suzuki. I mean, these are very much kind of cons conspiracy, conspiracy theory uh, feeling accusations. And, but it feels like that versus the direction that it, it's a different direction than where in a lot of ways, the rest of the world is headed. In a lot of ways, the rest of even industry in Alberta is headed. I mean, you you have, I think it was the head of Suncor was talking about net zero. I mean, you have the the CEOs and the, and the leaders of some of these large private, private energy companies talking about uh, transitioning to become energy companies. Or, I mean, not, not necessarily, that's not necessarily something new. I mean, a lot of these big companies, they're looking ahead 50, 100 years down the road and they want to exist. And they, so they're, they're looking at renewables. They're, they're looking at, at things like carbon levies and carbon taxes and, and net zero. And, and it does feel like the Alberta government is moving in, at least politically moving in one direction and the world is, is moving in another. Now, I guess, how, how do we reconcile that? I mean, yeah, there's a lot there. So, you know, I start, start with the, the campaign document, you know, the jobs, economy and pipelines. When you just take those three words, I mean, that's not too different than what Premier Notley was talking about in the lead in the campaign, right? The, and I think you saw a lot of change in not only Premier, then Premier Notley, but, but a lot of the NDP caucus in terms of, you know, once you come in and you realize, holy, here's what 
lack of market access is legitimately costing us every single day. Oh, here's what it actually costs to try to convince someone to build a refinery or an upgrader, and it turns out it doesn't create that many jobs. And you know, so the the reality of government, I think, changed that side of the ball in 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 a big hurry. The and you know, Alberta, we're sitting on you know, depending on whose numbers you use, um, top three, top two oil reserves in the world. I think any government, and Prime Minister Trudeau said the same thing, any government would be foolish not to look and say, what is it that we can do with those resources? What is it that we can do with this natural resource that's here that almost any other jurisdiction in the world will kill for? And I'd literally have, right? There's a lot of wars over oil and, and yep. resources and such things. So, um, so you know, on that side, I don't, I, I don't fault the government as much as as maybe some people do with with the focus on oil. But I think you know you, you look through what you're talking about. There's there's almost two things. There's the politicization of Alberta oil as like a sing, symbol of something. It's it's like a um, club colors or something like that, right? That I, I, I'm I now a, I'm an oil partisan. I'm a yeah. you know I'm an oil fan the same way I'm a you know it's almost like having a discussion about which is the better hockey team in Alberta. Right, it's it's not grounded in analytics and statistics and all of these sorts of things. It's like I can yell louder than you, and the red mile is better than white ath, and and we or we whatever. And and I think that's the 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 trade that in some ways the the premier and and their government has made is they've made oil and gas sort of a uh, a partisan in the small, I don't know if you say small P, but it's, it's, you know, are you on team oil and gas or are you not? And that's, I think is, is coded way of saying to a lot of people in Alberta who've, who've had really hard times since 2014, 15, you know, we're on your side. So I, I understand that. And I, and I think that's, um, that's a piece of this that, that shouldn't get lost. Now, are they doing, you know, Every bit of it has these grains of truth. So if you say the the anti uh, the un-Albertan activities inquiry panel, right? We know there's no conspiracy theory in there being a large and coordinated campaign to keep oil sands in the ground, right? That's very obvious. It's been part of. You don't need Vivian Krauss to tell you that that happened and that 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 a lot of environmental groups were opposed to the oil sands and worked through legal, legislative, and public channels to make that, to delay projects to, you know, that that's very obvious. And some people did some really cool and creative things. Um, but the, the conspiracy theory is that this is all some, you know, US oil led uh, and backed, like that there's somehow this in the background, it's Harold Hamm who's writing the checks to Greenpeace to, block the oil sands and that's where it becomes a, a conspiracy theory that there is this dark money and of course you know vivian krauss she's using all public documents she's not going into any dark money stuff it's when she tries to tell you what's not in the documents that it turns into um well you know we we, we can't say anything about who it is, but but look how it's benefited the U.S. oil industry, and I mean it must, it could, it you know, don't you think? And that's where it turns into the conspiracy. You know, the war room is another example, right? It's we we need someone to get out and and tell the story of the oil and gas industry. I mean, 
cap has a budget that has got to be, I don't know what it is, but that's their job, right? The oil and gas companies all have their marketing wing. What is the war room doing with $30 million is anybody's guess. Uh, it's doing something, uh, but you know, does that need, is that really part of a, as you say, like a long-term bet on oil and gas, or is that a government sponsored sort of more of a political action committee than an actual, we're trying to make a long-term bet on oil. That was a long rant, but. No, no, no that, that's, 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 I mean, you made, you made some good points. I mean, on, on the war room and it's, I mean, it seemed like, I mean, it's something that sounds good in a campaign speech when you're rallying the troops or when you're, uh, you know, you're speaking, you know, you're a conservative premier speaking to the Calgary Chamber of Commerce, uh, you know, a very sympathetic crowd. Uh, but in practice, uh, you know, it's, there, there doesn't seem to be any thought of how this makes, or maybe, maybe, well, maybe there has been quite a bit of thought into it, but, but, but it, at least it doesn't seem, doesn't seem like it's, it's, it's working yet. But uh, a lot of, there doesn't seem to have been a lot of thought in terms of how this makes Alberta look to outside investors. And I don't necessarily think, or, or the outside world or politicians outside us, and I don't necessarily think that's, that is even a, a key part of the equation, because I think that so much of this is geared towards Albertans and, and, and I mean, those, those, you know, those key groups of Albertans who, you know, have felt a lot of economic pain over the past number of years, have, you know, lost their jobs or, or are, are doing okay for Canadians in Canadian standard, the broader Canadian standards, but a few years ago, we're doing really well, really well during the oil. Yeah. And, and now, you know, those six figure jobs just don't exist anymore because as you said, the construction boom is, is done, it's gone. And, and that's probably that those kind of jobs in a, in a lot of cases probably aren't going to return. They're just not going to exist. Or in some cases they're going to be automated. Um, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. That it's, it's aimed, you know, when the, the war room goes after the New York times, they're not trying to convince Americans that the New York times is a outlet of ill repute they're sending a signal to Albertans that we're fighting your battle for you and that you know we're prepared to use whatever weapons are at our disposal to fight your battle. Um, I think you know that's one of the many examples that have backfired spectacularly on, on the war room and that it ends up actually having negative consequences outside of, of Alberta. But as you say, I don't know that it's, um, that that's, that's even material to why we have this thing i you know i do uh, and you know it's one of these again you come back to is there a grain of truth or is there uh, an advantage i mean alberta absolutely you know you think of how this thing was pitched should we have something that has a substantial budget that actually makes available information reliable information about our energy industry globally or even locally absolutely we should i mean we have information that is almost universally inaccessible about our energy industry and where we get it, we're getting it from sources that are advocates. And that's where the war room runs into a problem. If your choice is I'm going to make available only the data that makes us look good, then it becomes a huge problem. And so the, the premise of having more energy information is great. The execution, that's not what it is. Well, I mean, in, in the case of the war room, it's, it's essentially a government funded, public relations agency and and you know it's not it's not meant to uh you know you go you go on the on the on the uh canadian energy center website and it's not you know they're not a 
uh, a data sharing reason. It's not. It's not a resource of 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 data sharing. It's a, they're no. they're telling stories from a particular perspective, and and I do wonder what the kind of conversations are in you know in the communications offices and the, and the public relations offices of of the big energy companies and at CAP, which I mean essentially exists to do the same thing that the Canadian Energy Center is doing. I mean. The, as the industry association, as kind of the chief lobbyists of for many of not all, but many of the many of the companies, oil companies that that have headquarters in Calgary and that exist and operate in Alberta. Yeah, and and I think you know when you think of the cap model, right? There's so much diversity of companies at that table, and I, I think to some degree, what what you've seen, really probably since fourteen again or fifteen, is a division between the smaller companies, the larger companies, the service companies, et cetera. And not only what do they want the message being sent out, but also almost what they need, right? Do they need activity in the province? Do they need financing and insurance from big global conglomerates? Do they need, you know, what is it that they need? And is the work of CAP or the government or whoever matching their needs or frustrations of the day? So, you know, when you looked at, um, you know, think of Suncor and CNRL and, you know, their biggest challenge or one of their biggest challenges is convincing global pension funds not to divest from their stock, convincing global insurance companies to keep insuring their activities and to be able to get pipelines to access, to move their resources profitably to market. That's a very different um, set of information that you're trying to push out than if you're a small oil field operator who is concerned about how can I minimize my cost per barrel, right? The impact of a carbon price has a very different role for Murray Edwards and um, at that point, Steve Williams, now Mark Little, than it does uh, for a, a small, you know, 5,000 barrel a day operation. Yeah, so, so I mean, and, and the response that I heard, so going back a couple of years, going back to the the climate change advisory panel, going back to the climate leadership plan and that that press conference where the climate leadership plan was announced and you had uh, representatives of, you know, of big energy companies, CEOs who were there. You had representatives of environmental groups, First Nations leaders. Uh, and th there seemed to be, at least on that level, uh, I mean, I, I think I, when I wrote about it uh, back in, in 20, would have been 2015 or 2016, I said it was like, pigs were flying in in Alberta. You have these people, all this this group of people from all different backgrounds <laughs> in, in the in the related to the energy industry and, and environmental groups, all getting together and agreeing uh, and and being willing to stand on one stage and and stand behind this document, uh, the the climate leadership plan. And one of the one of the criticisms or one of, one of the ways that I've I heard opponents of the climate leadership plan and and I've heard, I think I heard Jason Kenny say this before was that. Uh, they tried. They they also tried to draw a distinction between the CEOs and presidents of the large corporations in Calgary and the and and the 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 owners and operators of the smaller uh, smaller oil and gas companies in in Grand Prairie and Red Deer uh, who yeah. weren't weren't on that stage. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. And you know, even amongst the people who were on the stage there were very powerful peers of both the oil companies and the environmental groups that were not happy with what happened even that day. Um, you know, being around that room that day, 
there were definitely people taking some pretty angry phone calls within minutes of that press conference, both on the oil CEO side and on the uh, environmental group executive director side. And so it wasn't just big versus small or, um, you know, environmental group versus small industry. There was a lot of, of division even between those, uh, those groups. So leading up to that day, uh, there, you know, you, you chaired this, this uh, advisory panel. Um, there was a lot of consultation that, that this group, that your group did with, with Albertans. I mean, you traveled around, held uh, open houses. There were uh, meetings with groups. There was online panels. There was like a, the whole swath of, of, uh, of engagement. Um, can you, I guess, re reflect on that, on that experience and, 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 and what you heard from Albertans and, and how that might be relevant today. You know, we, we tried to do the, the biggest thing we tried, we had a really short timeline, right? Because we started work in, you know, basically first of June, uh, middle of June to, to spin this up. And we were, we knew that the, that Canada was going to go to Paris and we didn't know who the government was going to be. Uh, but we knew we had to have something in Premier Notley's hands well before Paris. So that gave us a really short timeline with the middle of summer in like jammed in the middle of it. And so what we tried to do was make it so that if you were engaged in this, that you could get your opinion across to us so that you could either write someone an email, you could fill out a form, you could come to a town hall, you could do something. Uh, but, you know, I've heard over and over and, and I wish we could have seen more people. I wish we could have done more town halls. I wish we could have been in every community and, and we just didn't manage to do that. But you know what we heard then, and, and remember, this is like oil is just starting to crash, right? So the the hundred dollar oil is not far from everybody's memory, and so there was, but there was of course a lot of anxiety about about the crash, the relationship between Alberta and the rest of the world. The pipeline issue was was very much front and center, and that may be the interesting thing is, is you go back and look at all of our engagement, whether it's from the pipeline advocates, whether it's from the Alberta. Uh, our online survey or a representative sample survey of Albertans, everybody was key that acting on climate change was crucial to getting access to markets, that those two were fundamentally linked. Um, and I think that's probably the one that's that's faced the most challenge since is that, you know, despite the fact that Alberta, I think, put in um, you know, what was the most aggressive set of policies that you've seen any jurisdiction adopt in a single initiative. Um, you know, you saw the the world move and the goalposts move really quickly under Premier Notley and from the left. And that makes, you know, you think of how much went into getting that policy across the line. Um, I've got, you know, e emails and messages from people six months apart where on the day of the the plan they congratulate me for it and talk about how big of a step it was and six months later they say why are you still defending this fraud of a plan and it's the same plan and so i think that's maybe the other lesson that that i've learned coming through that is how quickly the ground is is shifting and has shifted on this on this policy space that people felt like okay we you know it's not really we signed a deal but it was you know, we had an understanding where a lot of different interest groups came to the table. We saw, we listened to each other. We saw where everybody was coming from. 
we came to something that a lot of people could agree on. And then six months later, that agreement sort of cleaved away a little bit. The Dave Berta Podcast is brought to you by the Well Endowed Podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink and produced by Lisa Pruden. And the show explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds. And the podcast tells the story of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can listen to any episode of The Well-Endowed Podcast at thewellendowedpodcast.com. This episode of the Dave Berta Podcast is also brought to you by World on Fire, a new podcast from CBC Edmonton. World on Fire is a new five-part series that takes you to the front lines of -of out-of-control wildfires in Canada, Australia, and California. Recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, hosts Adrian Lamb and Mike Flanagan look at what it takes to find hope in the midst of fear and destruction and how communities affected by wildfires rebuild. The series examines the high costs that wildfires cause to people's health, their homes, and their communities. Find World on Fire on the CBC Listen app or wherever you listen to podcasts you can also find it online at cbc.ca slash world on fire. What do you think that, like, I guess hindsight wise, what, what do you think that, I mean, what do, you, what do you think should have been done in terms of a reaction to that? Um, that's a great question. You know, I think the, so the hindsight question, I, I'll put you back in uh, uh, the first hindsight question I think people need to ask and don't ask is, what would have happened if the government had done something different on that day? And so remember what happened, like the, the news conference you talked about on the weekend, you know, why did we do it on the Sunday when there was an Edmonton Calgary football game? Because there was a first minister's meeting on the Monday. And so the premier went from that news conference on the plane to Ottawa to be at the first minister's meeting. What happens if she announces something different on the Sunday? So what happens if she stands up and says, well, you know, oil markets are, are crashing, things are uncertain here in Alberta, I think we'll just wait and see what happens. We, we're not gonna take a strong position. Then you have the first minister's meeting on climate change with a newly elected uh, Trudeau government and strong push for strong action on climate change at that point from Ontario, from Quebec and from BC, Alberta becomes the odd one out at that meeting. Alberta comes in with a pricing plan the headline in the Globe and Mail in the morning of it was, you know, Alberta climate policy. I don't remember what it was, but it basically, we, the, the Alberta took over that meeting and set the agenda for that meeting and ended up setting what the federal policy became in the long term. And I think people have to step back and say, if Alberta had come to that meeting saying, this isn't that important or we got to wait and see, then the agenda would have been set by somebody else. It would have been set by Quebec and BC and Ontario, probably in a way that Alberta wouldn't really like in a way that would have said, yeah, I can, I can look at the graph of emissions and say, we've got a, we got a national target of 30% below 2005 emissions by 2030. Let's just divide that up amongst the provinces and provinces can figure out how to meet it and the federal government can enforce it federally. We'll do it you know, as a sort of cap and trade-esque system. And that would have had huge implications for Alberta. 
And, and so I think that's the first counterfactual people have to step back to is remember there were other moving parts in there. Um, in terms of pushing back against the um, the shifting goalposts, I, I think Premier Nodley and, and to some degree, um, Premier Kenny's highlighted this as well. I think, uh, you know, we're reasonably strong at saying, look, we're still doing a lot. You look at the policies today and Premier Kenny's suffering from this, the, the tier policy I've been pretty supportive of it because of what it does on on electricity. It's a much stronger policy than almost anywhere else in the world. Um, great, you know how many jurisdictions in the world would love to have a policy that puts a what will be soon a fifty dollar a ton wedge between gas power and coal power. A lot of places would love to have it. We have it in Alberta. Um, you know, if we had that in the U.S., if we had that in China, if we had that in India, it'd make massive progress. So I think that there is that idea to say, look, we're doing something. If the rest of the world did what we're doing, we'd meet global goals. And that's always been my pushback. And, and Premier Notley, I thought, did that pretty well. Uh, Catherine McKenna with the Beyond Coal Coalition and starting to push some of the others on coal power and coal phase out, I think, was a really good half step. I think we could have gone a lot further with that, though. I think we got to lean harder into, you know, what if, where is your carbon price? Where is your phase out of coal power by 2030? Are we serious about this? Um, and and start pushing a little bit harder. I, I thought one of the, I mean, one of the bold, one of the things that that that, that did really stick out, even though this was something that, that other governments had talked about. Uh, I mean, the Harper government had talked about phasing out old, older uh, coal generation plants. And, and in, in a way, it seemed like the NDP tried to take some credit from that. Uh, you using the climate leadership plan? Um, uh, I remember when when it when it was released. The uh, I mean, there were all these kind of graphs that that were released in the report that talked about with the the the, the time phase out of of of, uh, of coal plants, and some of them were were already scheduled to be phased out maybe a few years later under under the Harper government. And and I wonder if uh, and and this is just me going speculating, and, and you guess you don't have to answer this, but I I, mean, I wonder if if they had tied you know, more intentionally tied some of these decisions towards um, some of the previous decisions that the Harper government had made and not trying to, or not trying to make, you're trying to make it a, a cross-partisan issue in terms of, of, of the phase out of coal, whether, whether that would have been more successful. Because I think one of the, one of the political failures following the, the climate leadership plan was the NDP on, on this coal issue. And, and I think, Premier Notley herself not, and, and the NDP actually not going out into these rural Alberta communities um, uh, aggressively enough, and, and talking about the phase coal out that that really will have a you know have a huge impact on on these communities like Hannah, huge communities out in in uh, the the coal plants that are being phased out at Wabamum. Um, yeah. you know these are real life impacts, um, and I mean I think that was a kind that was kind of a missed opportunity. Yeah, I think, you know, Ken Hughes, who's a former minister, as, as you know, um, I ran into him shortly after the, the climate leadership plan was released. And, and I don't think he'll mind me, me saying this, but one, one of the things he said uh, to me was, you know, you, you built on what was already there. And, and we did. And, and I, I don't know if we acknowledge that enough, that when you think about the Stelmac government policies, right? That those that specified gas emitters policy, yeah, sure, it had it had some issues, but it meant that we could put in a climate policy in Alberta by changing like six parts of a regulation, as opposed to writing a new one from scratch. 
the coal phase out, of course, you had all of the, as you say, the Harper era Canadian Environmental Protection Act changes uh, that not only did they set the groundwork for this, but they also made it much easier for the Trudeau government to come in behind the, the Alberta changes. So I think that was absolutely, um, absolutely crucial and maybe didn't get enough recognition. And, and I think, you know, it became such a part of uh, political football, the, the carbon pricing issue that maybe it wasn't possible, but I think there was some opportunity to recognize as opposed to sort of the narrative that, you know, yeah, late, late Harper, there was a lot of vitriol, the sort of Joe Oliver era of um, action on climate change, but there was a lot early on um, you know, the turning the corner plan is a great example. As you look at that document today, it's still arguably um, more stringent than anything we have on the table right now. You know, mandatory carbon capture and storage in oil sands, uh, coal phase out, $70 a ton carbon price on industrial emissions, all of these things that, you know, today would still seem like a pretty stringent policy if, if Prime Minister Trudeau took that policy updated the dates and put it on the table today, um, people would would think of this as being very aggressive policy. And yet um, that government was was sort of seen universally as being anti-action um, on climate change. So I think there was some opportunity there, uh, maybe, but, and, and you're absolutely right about the coal phase out. And, and I think, you know, one of my bugbears uh, often is people underestimate how challenging things like, oh, we can just say the words just transition and things will be great. Uh, it's really hard to overcome the challenges of a closure of a major facility in any community. And, you know, people, you know, economists, we often think of people being mobile, but people aren't that mobile and families aren't that mobile, especially if they're forced into it. And so we know a lot of people relocate here for employment and have for decades. Uh, but there are also a lot of people who are left behind in manufacturing towns in Ontario or mill towns in New Brunswick or all of these sorts of things. And and so I think that's probably something, you know, at the end of the day, it's pretty hard for government to, to buffer that cost. Um, and so, you know, maybe there's, there's something there, as you put it, you know, this is, this is having real impacts on communities. And I think we, you know, maybe needed, more acknowledgement of that as opposed to um we can solve that yeah and I, and I don't necessarily think that was the that was the like the that politics side was the role of the it was it, it's not necessarily a criticism of the panel and, and, the, and the work that, no. that your community I'm, I'm talking more about the the political end of actually going out and implementing it and buy in and, and uh generating that that buy the buy-in from the from the communities and, and going out and selling it and, and i i i yeah. hindsight that's kind of one of one of one of my criticisms of of it and i mean I think one thing that's interesting there on the politics that you highlight is you know remember what else was going on at the time and so we think of a community um you know whether it's uh, hannah's hannah's an example wab etc um where you've got it's not just the people like the the coal-fired power plant was it's going to be shut down in 10 years from now and you've got a big government operation coming in there and saying, we're going to help all these people who at the moment have very good jobs, paying them very good salaries. Meanwhile, their neighbors have lost their jobs in oil field service. 
And so I think that was what made in some ways the politics of it much more challenging was you couldn't necessarily go in and to those communities and say, here's our great program to help these people who, you know, sometime in the future, their plant's going to shut down without acknowledging the what about the people whose company went bankrupt yesterday? And what are you going to do for them? And then, you know, as, as I think even Premier Kenny now is figuring out the scale of you know your ability to help the number of people who've been displaced in, in this oil price crash that's beyond the scope that go the government could deal with and i think that's what can confronted the ndp more than anything else yeah i remember i remember <clears throat> excuse me and i i've to think of to linked about this and talked about this on the on the podcast before but there's a great episode of of this american life going back about 10 years ago where they talk about just how hard it is or just how easy it is for politicians to promise uh, creating jobs to promise to create jobs to promise to create ten thousand or a hundred thousand jobs, but but just how difficult it actually is for politicians and government to create private sector jobs. Yeah. Uh, and the I think the 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 key example they talked about was uh, was uh, Scott Walker in Wisconsin and how one of his key promises was he was going to create fifty thousand jobs and or a hundred thousand jobs and and it turns out when he was when he when he was finally you know when he was defeated nine years or or ten years later he you know his government only created like. Three th and it, and it, policies only ended up creating like two thousand jobs because it's it's very easy to make a promise, but but uh, to actually create those jobs is is something quite different. Agreed, and and I think the the piece that that people miss in a lot of these conversations, you know, I challenge people all the time. If you think you have this magic formula that you know, for example, can help Alberta diversify away from the oil and gas industry and recreate the economy that was in Alberta. 2006 to 2014, let's do it in Northern New Brunswick today, right? Let's do it in Southwestern Ontario today. You don't need to shut down the oil industry to make this happen, let's do it. And, you know, my family's all from Northeastern New Brunswick. The mills left there in large part, you know, more than a more than decades ago. And, you know, we have the Firearms Center and we have the Phoenix Pay Center and all of these things that sort of sustain the communities. But there's no, there isn't a new major private sector venture that's sustaining those communities decades after the uh, after the the mill industry collapsed, or you know, go to Newfoundland or what have you. So you know, these things are really hard. So one one of the kind of prevailing feelings, I mean, or prevailing narratives, prevailing feelings, I think among a lot of Albertans is that. Uh, you know the 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 boom days are gone or you know we the, when the booms when the boom turns to bust because we do live in a cyclical economy there's this constant uh you know saying that you know lord give me another oil boom and i won't piss it away and I'm, you know there's this mythical bumper sticker that existed may or may not have existed in the in the 1980s during during the recession the, the big recession in the 1980s um but it doesn't seem that we really uh we really actually take that saying to heart and you know we go from boom to bust and uh and and we, we just we're, we're stuck on this this roller coaster i mean i think jim prentice was one of the was one of the politicians that talked about this roller coaster and he talked about it in, in terms of of oil royalties in terms of the government but i mean it can really be looked at i think in terms of of the economy i mean we, we really depend uh both in terms of government revenue and in terms of our our uh 
our economy on the international price of oil. I mean, you talked about the construction boom, and that that was something that that's that's different. But but it, there's no there's no arguing that the international price of oil collapsing has had a huge huge impact in Alberta. So, I mean, where you know, if I if I could ask you to put your you know, you look at your magic ball and uh, and put your your speculation glasses on. You know, where where are we in in ten years from now? Is is with with all the calls of diversification and discussion about it, and and finance minister Travis Taves talk now finally starting to talk about diversification. Uh, what does that look like? And like, where where is Alberta ten years from now? I mean, I, I would like to think that our best days are ahead of us, and our best days are not behind us. Um, but it can be pretty depressing sometimes when you look at at the way the you know the way the international economy is moving, the divestment, internet, the, the numbers of international uh, uh, wealth management companies and banks divesting in Alberta's oil sands. Um, is there is there a better way? Is there uh, it, it, should should we be looking forward to, uh, to to the future economy in Alberta? You know, I, I think. The Trevor Toome had a really neat graph the other day, probably a month ago now, where he looked at mentions of diversification in the Calgary Herald <laughs> and correlated it to oil price. And in the Lougheed, Lougheed Getty era, when oil prices spiked, that's when people talked about diversification. So they looked at it as it's booming, it's not going to last, we need to diversify. But in more recent years, it's flipped to a complete negative correlation. So the times when, you know, everyone wants diversification in a crash. And I think that's a very dangerous place for us to be in the sense that, you know, if you're, if you're looking around for something that's going to replicate the boom when the boom is not there. So you're trying to say, okay, let's peg it at the high level and find the things we can do that keep us there. That's going to be really hard. Um, you know, simply that's not something a government can create. There's no government that's going to be able to create an environment where just by the policies of that government, people want to come in and invest tens of billions of dollars a year in new projects and new plants and new production of whatever, right? Oil or widgets or whatever, solar panels, I don't care. Uh, so I think that's in some ways that's where I, you know, I, I think older era premier kenny you know if we go back to to sort of klein era kenny and talking about how the government should stay out of the business of business uh, you know i hope he finds some of that when they're going through this uh financial planning because the idea that you can recreate through government targeting and investment uh some kind of that boom is is challenging and, and of course the other side of it's true too did we really want premier stelmack saying hmm no, you can't come in here and build that $10 billion worth of new projects. Do you, you know, if you want the diversification, you've got to be willing to turn away some of the boom. And that was, was always going to be challenging. So, you know, I think what's the biggest challenge for Alberta going forward is, or first challenge is budgeting, knowing we're going to face that lack of, um, probably that lack of windfall oil and gas profits and the, and the royalties that go with it. But what makes me optimistic about Alberta? Young population, educated population. We still have a mass, like, 
you know, we talk about it as no oil and gas revenues and, and such things. I mean, we've still got an industrial complex in Fort McMurray that's generating employment and income and government revenue that nobody else in Canada has. And, you know, we still are sitting on this massive uh, source of resource capital, oil and gas, obviously, but also forestry and, you know, if we want to talk about renewables, et cetera. So all of that, you know, if you say, would any province in Canada trade their state of affairs for our state of affairs? Our fiscal situation, our ba government balance sheet, I think the answer is yes, all the way across the board. So that's what makes me optimistic. The The question is, you know, can can we, you know, are we going to try to force the economy that we want? And, you know, my sense is that Premier Kenny's not going to be much of a central planner, uh, but he's showing tendencies of that, unfortunately. Or are we going to, you know, let the economy do what it does? Let prices signal um, diversification, let labor migration uh, do what it does, which is you're not going to have the same numbers of people shifting into the province to seek those jobs that are no longer there. You're going to have different types of businesses that all of a sudden can afford an employee. Right. That before, if you said, I want to start up my, uh, you know, whatever company, I, solar panel installation, you had to compete for your electricians with a booming residential construction sector, a booming commercial construction sector, a booming oil sands construction sector and a booming oil sands operation sector. Now you've got different things you got to compete with. Maybe your business is viable that wasn't viable before. So. I think, you know, I'm maybe more laissez-faire on this than some, but, you know, diversification will figure itself out. It's when the government gets involved and starts doubling down or tripling down that you end up with some pretty costly outcomes. So, so the moral of the story is during the next boom, we should all make a mental note to talk about diversification. We should, and, and that the government should do what it can do, which is ensure people reduce volatility on individuals. And I mean, we're seeing that in spades right now with COVID, right? It, it's not a problem that's about that. Well, it is obviously a macro shock, but at the micro level, you have people whose households have lost two sources of income and potentially a business and all of these sorts of things that they just can't insure themselves and saying, let the market sort that out. It's going to sort it out in ways that we really don't like with some big consequences. Yeah. I, I, I think a lot, a lot of the commentary I've heard or some of the commentary I've heard around, uh, around COVID and the government's response to COVID is that, you know, we've had, we've been told for years that government can't do a number. We've been told, told by politicians that government can't do so many things. And we've, has been we've basically discovered during COVID that actually the government or we you know we, we've been reassured that the government can actually do a lot of things and it can do a lot of things very quickly if, if it decides to. I mean obviously there's there's financial consequences to a lot of the things that the government the federal government and the provincial government have done over the past three months that we probably don't really know or they probably don't really know what those consequences are yet uh, yeah. but, but government has the ability to move large sums of money uh, to Canadians very quickly yeah, and, and you know, that on that point, I think we have this mentality right now where we're all just waiting for the stimulus package, right? We're waiting for the billboards to go up that say whatever this government's version of the economic action plan is. But people need to remember there's a huge stimulus program going on right now, and there has been since day one, which is dumping huge amounts of government money into people's pockets. It's just not doing it through building roads and bridges. It's doing it through direct transfers to people. 
Yeah. And you know, that's that's stimulus, right? That's what's allowing still a lot of our economy to continue functioning, despite the fact that, you know, for all intents and purposes, 30% of people are unemployed in terms of the size of the economic shock. We're seeing a big economic shock, but nowhere near what we would see if governments weren't doing what they're doing. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks again to our producer, Adam Rosenhardt, for making this podcast sound so good. Thank you so much to Andrew Leach for joining us today and, and sharing his, his knowledge and thoughts on economy, pipelines, climate change, and, and where Alberta is headed. I'm glad we could, uh, we could end it a little bit on a more positive note, looking towards, looking towards the future. Uh, if you don't already, you can follow Andrew on Twitter at, at Andrew Leach, uh, or you can check out his Wikipedia page on Wikipedia. It's very extensive. So thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. Thanks, I'm going to go check that out right now, now that I know about it. Uh, we Thanks, are a, Thanks, Adam. Yeah, we're, it was great, great that you could join us. Uh, we're a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Uh, send us your feedback on Twitter and Instagram at, at Dayberta or on the Dayberta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at dayberta.ca. And if you feel so inclined, we, you know, we encourage you to leave a review where you listen to this podcast. We, uh, we love hearing your feedback. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>